Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back, Critic listeners. Half the world has seen a James Bond film, or so the estimates have it, making 007 one of the most globally recognisable British brands, as well as the longest, most successful film franchise in history. But what does Bond stand for, and how has he changed since Ian Fleming created him in the 1950s? Professor Jeremy Black, author of The World of James Bond and The Politics of James Bond, unpicks the life and times of 007 with The Critic's political editor, Graham Stewart. One of the victims of coronavirus has been the release of the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die. Originally due in April, it now looks as if it will be coming out in November. But there have been so many James Bond films uh, following on from the original books that uh, how has the character evolved? How has he changed? Um, Jeremy Black, um, what is the difference really between the character that Ian Fleming created in his novels back in the 1950s and how that was translated to the screen. The Sean Connery Bond, for example, how different was he? Well, the Bond of the novels was relatively introspective, didn't like killing people, um, and in some respects was a capital R romantic hero. In other words, a rather troubled, introspective individual. Uh, And indeed, he has breakdowns, and in the last novel, last full-length novel, Man with the Golden Gun, tries to kill M. Well, those kind of uncertainties are not generally conveyed, I think it's fair to say, by the character depicted on the screen. So I think there's quite major differences, which is indeed what you would anticipate for a character that has existed uh, for so long, um, nearly 70 years now. Um, You would expect uh, him to, as it were, be created in response to particular social changes and market opportunities. I wonder, though, if the character now played by Daniel Craig isn't getting a little closer to that figure with you know, difficulties and, and, and doubts. Well, that's interesting. I think the one who most uh, corresponded with the uh, Fleming Bond is, in a sense, Timothy Dalton. And both those two novels, he was, as it were, played almost at a slight distance from the camera. Um, in the case of the Daniel Craig, I think in some respects it, he's a response to the Bourne uh, films. So there's less dialogue, more action, um, in some respects more of a strip cartoon character. But I, I was thinking maybe particularly in Skyfall we get a, a bit of the backstory about his difficult relations uh, with his father and so on, and, and you know the sense that, that he's a killer, but, but, but a, a, a more of a troubled man that, than we've perhaps got Yes, I agree yet. with you, but there's a big difference between the novels and the modern depiction. The novels, you have a troubled figure who gets on with the job, and famously at the end of Casino Royale, the novel says the bitch is dead, which is both a, rep- a reference 
to the female character, but also to his own troubles, his own anxieties, his own uncertainty about the job. He gets on and does it. Now, the I'm afraid we now live in a much more you know neurotic, um, self-obsessed society, and in many respects, the depiction of Daniel Craig, Craig as a troubled individual very much more reflects that society than it does um, the the one in the aftermath of World War Two, where whatever you might feel about life, it was your job to be resolute against the Germans and the Japanese and to kill if necessary. Ian Fleming, uh, was he writing with a purpose broader than to, to entertain? Well, he wanted to earn money. I mean, he had a um, an expensive wife with uh, ambitious tastes, so there was that. And a lot of novelists are very much in that position. They wish to live in certain. Uh, they wish, you know, to live in certain comforts, certain style. I mean, Anthony Trollope, for example, and the kind of modern conceit that the novelist should, in some way, be impecunious. Although, of course, also lavishly rewarded by the state through sort of, you know, the nebulous way that the state gives out grants. Um, the uh, that was not one that would have uh, committed uh, con- uh, commended itself to Fleming. Um, what else was he trying to do? Yes, he was trying to show that uh, he could. Right, he was very much, um, I think, in rivalry with his brother Peter. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, entertain, yes, but also they're all, at least initially, sort of located in the here and now. Uh, Casino Royale relates to anxieties that were held about uh, what would happen in the event of World War Three, what the communist trade unions in Western Europe would do by way of straight strike action. In Live and Let Die, the second novel, um, uh, Fleming is very much reflecting the anxiety that J. Edgar Hoover, whom he knew personally, had that um, communist subversion of uh, African-American descent might well be a problem for America in the Cold War. So, uh, yes, they are written to a here and now agenda, um, which resonates with Fleming's interest in the world. And, of course, his his role uh, and his connections, which he'd got both through intelligence operations during World War Two and then subsequently through journalism. Uh, James Bond, of course, I mean, is not the first British hero to foil dastardly plans often by foreigners. I mean, one thinks of uh, Sapper's creation, Bulldog Drummond, and John Buchan's Richard Hannay. Uh, how does Bond differ from these figures? And, and secondly, how is it that Bond became this international brand, but Bulldog Drummond and Richard Hannay didn't? Well, that's very interesting. I mean, in fact, in one respect, they don't differ at all. They'll all be banned from every single library and bookshop in the country if the present iconoclasts get their way. So let's be aware of that. Um, because all of them are, in a sense, defenders of the empire, and that is obviously totally undesirable and verboten. Um, but uh, what differences do you have? Well, in many respects, uh, Bond, and I know this is going to surprise you, is a quite a modern figure in 1950s terms. In other words, um, you have novels in which, albeit not to what would be to modern tastes or sensitivities, you have women who are not defined by a wish for um, matrimony or motherhood. So the, the women are independent agents, uh, 
most of them, not all of them, have sex with Bond and send some of them try and kill him. Um, they're not the kind of rather placid characters uh, um, who are vic- born victims of so much of so many of the 19 teens and 20s novels of that type. Um, and there is a, I, I, I would say, a greater degree of edginess uh, linked to that. But on the other hand, there is a common sense of purpose. There is a common sense of purpose, a belief that Britain, its empire, its social system, its political continuity and its culture is valid and must be defended against threats both threats from without, but also crucially, and you get that in all of these, um, um, possibly more so in the 1920s ones, threats from within, the idea that foreign powers will use um, Bolshevism, will use um, uh, fascism, the, the Nazi the Nazi movement in order to undermine Britain and that was a common characteristic and that in a way you need resolute individuals to stand forth against that so these are novels about value and values and that is why they are very unpopular today in our sort of postmodernist thug I think many people who have grown up with the films but haven't read the novels would be interested in the idea that uh, in Fleming's James Bond, actually does have values. In the film version, he's certainly become a figure who's almost less a spy, more just a trained killer. And uh, we, he never really discusses why he's doing it, other than uh, it, it's his job to do it. So th- there is, is there a, a real difference in that respect in terms of flashing out the philosophy of Bond in the novels and Bond on the screen? Well, that's interesting. First of all, may I put in a plug for my two books, The Politics of James Bond and The World of James Bond, because they do give a lot of weight to the novels as well as the films. Um, uh, Philosophy is not always a phrase that I would necessarily associate with the depiction of Bond. Let's say a set of ideas and values. Um, Well, first of all, if we look at the films, let's take this the other way around. Um, I wouldn't see him as just simply a trained killer. And incidentally, uh, be under no illusion, trained killers have values as well, you know. But I wouldn't see him as just simply a trained killer. Um, He is, as it were, purposed in part by the way that we see the villains as such vile individuals, both in terms of their intentionality, which is always depicted, and they're always, of course, famously tell Bond how they're going to end the world, end the species, whatever, and also by the vile way in which they kill those they capture, in which they treat women, in which they treat their own subordinates. So, so that there is a clear sense of good versus ill, and that's the shock that you then get in Goldeneye, because in Goldeneye, the theme of betrayal within the service is introduced, um, and that is very much a, uh, a, a, a posing of questions about what Bond is doing, and of course Bond is taunted um, by his rival, who had been a uh, a um, MI6 agent, so so I think that that element should be brought out. In far as far as the novels are concerned, I would say yes. There's a fundamental common commonality there again that um, that Bond represents a British system that is that is not just benign in a soft sense, but that is hard-edged good, that these are morality struggles between good and bad. And there is very little to be said in favor of the bad. So you move 
from Smirsh, which is the villainy of the Soviet Union, to Spectre, which is a free-floating, um, you know, sort of extortionist, murder, terrorist, criminal racket. Um, neither of these are presented as at all benign. And in some respects, if you're looking for a parallel, I mean, you've got some of the some of the works of, say, Dennis Wheatley, in which um, you know, uh, evil is clearly linked to the Nazis. And um, again, that is very clear in its uh, moral location. So um, uh, whether we want to call that philosophy or not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know. But in a sense, the whole point about the society that is depicted is that you don't need angst. What you need is purpose. And of course, in Casino Royale, James Bond is shown overcoming his lack of purpose. That's in the novel. And subsequently in the novels, under the strain of his job, he gets uh, less sure of himself. And in the end, of course, he is brainwashed um, by the Soviets, which is why he tries to kill M at the beginning of Man with the Golden Gun. Uh, James Bond is British, but... but Need he be British? By which I mean, if he'd been American, would the plots have been different in any particular respect? Well, if he'd been American, it depends who'd written them, I think, is the question. And also, in terms of an international sales brand, I think America, um, in a way, suffered by the unpopularity of the Vietnam War by the late 60s and of the, uh, the image created of the Nixon administration in the early 70s. So it's, in some respects, the very weakness of Britain uh, by that period that helps to make it sort of almost more acceptable that the hero is a MI6 agent. Um, but if you mean, does the struggle between good and evil have to be set in any particular country? The answer, of course, is no. But if you mean, does a novel then film series about the British Secret Service benefit from having a British actor or an actor who can depict themselves as British? I would say yes. Mm, and and uh, in 1953, when the first novel is published, Casino Royale, Britain is discernibly a great power. Oh, very much so. 1953, you have what is known as the New Elizabethan Age, after Her Majesty who'd come to the throne the previous year and who was crowned in 53. 53, Britain still has a very large empire in um, Africa, in the Caribbean, in the Pacific, in Southeast Asia. It has the second largest fleet in the world after America. It's the third atomic power. Um, it's about to become the third hydrogen bomb power. Um, and there is this sense that Britain is, a, were, is modern. This is the country of peaceful nuclear power stations, diesel trains, etc., etc. So there's a sense of modernity there, of a country that could mix the continuity of the past with the, with the prospect of, of, of progress, um, sort of an image that has largely been evaded uh, uh, many modern Britons. And from that perspective, James Bond appears entirely uh, impressive in the 50s. And indeed, I mean, in some of the novels, for example, um, in uh, From Russia with Love, there's a discussion near the beginning of the novel in which they're discussing how best to deal with the Soviet penetration of British intelligence. And Bond, Fleming has Bond suggest that they should some recruit some homosexuals in order better to counter 
um, uh, you know, the uh, homosexual agents, which of course had been the case with Burgess, for example. Now, in some respects, you could regard that as laughable by modern standards. But the interesting thing is, here you are having a discussion about doing something which would be recognizably different to the image presented of a previous decade. And indeed, the the older chap chairing the committee doesn't like that. He's presented as being a member, somebody of the past values. So, you know, one of the points about the condescension of which people have towards posterity is that in the 1960s, the 1950s was presented as completely, uh, you know, useless um, and behind the times, reactionary and all the rest of it. Actually, that's rubbish. The 1950s, in their their own way, uh, in Britain, um, uh, was a period of change, a different change, you might actually say, change that was more consistent with the nature of society as a whole. Um, But, and you know, to a degree, the popularity of Fleming's Bond came with that. One of the interesting things then subsequently is that it was then depicted as in some way reactionary, etc., etc., well, there's a famous quote, isn't there, from the, the New Statesman uh, at the time, I think written by Paul Johnson. In his, in written his by book. Paul Johnson, who in his career has said lots of stupid things, yeah. He, he, he accused the, the Bond novels of being nothing more than sex, snobbery and sadism. Yes, it shows um, how he clearly hadn't read them, for example. I mean, if we, you know, I mean, which wouldn't surprise you if you look at some of his, uh, of his uh, criticism. Um, the, uh, you know, he said he condemned Dr. No as the nastiest book he'd ever read, which said a lot about his limited reading and his flawed uh, judgment. He described its contents, I seem to remember. I'm just trying to get the quote into my head. All, health, all unhealthy, all thoroughly English, which obviously for Johnson then was a matter of condemnation. Quote, the sadism of a schoolboy bully, the mechanical two-dimensional sex longings of a frustrated adolescent and the crude snob cravings, I think he then ended up as saying, of a suburban adult. Well, uh, you know, I mean, it, I will leave aside for a sec the way that Johnson now is a sort of a, pella, a pillar of the right and leave aside also that the review itself was quite snobbish. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, he said, I have no idea what he meant by this. Mr. Fleming dishes up his recipe with all the calculated accountancy of a lion's corner house. Um, I think that this was just really stupid. It reflected the way in which intellectuals of the left, and Johnson was then an intellectual of the left, uh, didn't like uh, the way in which the working class, and by then, of course, um, Bond was being run as a strip cartoon in the Daily Express, the most popular uh, newspaper of the time. Uh, they didn't like the fact that you know those values were not those of CND and the Labour Party and all the rest of it. I mean, if you want to, you know, other quotes on it, uh, I think it's Raymond Chandler who said Bond is what every man would like to be and what every woman would like to have between her sheets. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not, but you know, what is the point of? swapping off quotations to say good or bad. The sales of the Bond things reflect, of the Bond novels reflect their success. And in terms of literary um, range, if you take, for example, the novel The Spy Who Loved Me, um, the uh, the novel itself is written from the perspective of Vivienne Michel, a young Canadian, and shows uh, how that he has his skill as uh, as, as a writer. Um, and of course, it's worth bearing in mind that um, uh, you know, he also wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Uh, he wrote some rather good travel journalism. I mean, he wasn't a very nice man. 
But he was a very good writer, and some of his short stories are, you know, A Quantum of Solace, for example, um, well, you know, which is set in a dinner party with the governor of the Bahamas, and um, it's essentially about adultery in the tropics. You know, it, it's a very powerful short story. Um, and the idea that all his novels, all his writing is, uh, writings was depicted by Paul Johnson just shows how, you know, how, quite frankly, Johnson didn't know what he was talking about. Ian Fleming had to endure quite a lot of um, attacks, not just from the left, but also from the the, the snootier side of the establishment of the establishment as well. I mean, I'm thinking that awful story. He had a rather grand wife, and I, I'm remembering that awful story of him returning home early, quietly, one evening to find his wife surrounded by literary friends who were reading passages out of the Bond novels and, and laughing derisively at them you know there must have been quite a lot to quite a lot to endure well yes i mean i think he how should one put it um none of that would be new if you think about the affected world of um which we still have to this day the kind of books that get reviewed in the newspapers or the literary journals what get the people that act as reviewers in things like the tls or the literary review the the sort of the way in which, as Private Eye brilliantly shows, they all scratch each other's back, um, the corruption in which uh, publishers that place adverts then have their books reviewed favorably. I mean, there is a still a rotten uh, nature of the literary establishment, exactly the same of the establishment that runs um, the historical profession, you know, fellows of the British Academy giving each other grants, this sort of thing. Um, so none of that should surprise us. I mean, you know, Fleming was writing the books. Uh, the books were worth reading. Um, many of the people that criticised him are, you know, are, are those who today we know and hear little about and little of. I mean, I wrote myself about 10 years ago a book, uh, 100 Documents that, that Shaped the British Nation, and one of the 100 I included was the manuscript for Casino Royale, uh, precisely because of the enormous cultural influence uh, of the James Bond franchise, if we can call it that, I think we probably can now, uh, supposedly half the world has seen a James Bond film, not quite sure how that statistic has come to, but at any rate, the, 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 he's continued to be box office, it's the most successful um, film franchise in, in cinema history. How much longer can this go on for, given that um, you know, the, the, the Britain that existed in the 1950s is so different now? Has Bond moved with those times, or is he actually part of an escapism which is rather removed from, from the Britain of now, and, and that's the reason why, why he continues to uh, attract so much interest? Well, first of all, multi-questions multi there. First of all, of course it's escapism, because most intelligence work is group work, the kind of you're on your own now, James, no, that is not the general norm. Um, but um, in terms of moving with the times, yes, obviously. I mean, James Bond, her, who used to be uh, each film usually having several girlfriends, is now a serial monogamist. There's very little 
sex, there's very little, if any, smoking, there's very little drinking, there's a lot of killing people, uh, but uh, the other vices are singularly not there. Uh, Bond doesn't make any non-PC remarks. He's the sort of person uh, who, uh, bizarrely, I mean, most people, if they kill somebody, they're in some degree of shock, and they'll usually blaspheme. No, well, you don't get that with James Bond. So, um, so there is a degree of escapism about the violence, yes, um, there is a degree of PCdom and changing. Yes, um, there is, as you say, I, it, it varies. Sometimes it's the most successful film franchise. Sometimes it's the latest one of the Star Wars. It depends where you are in the sequence. But it is instructive to think that, um, as I put it, I think, in one of my books, that uh, with Her Majesty the Queen and Winston Churchill, um, James Bond is the most famous Brit of the last century. And of course, the three were brought together uh, for the opening of the uh, of the Olympics, that ceremony, when they didn't have hoodlums cl- clambling all over him, uh, the statue of Churchill, of course, where the, you know. Um, so I think that he was an, ic- an icon of Britishness. Uh, Britain is becoming more inconsequential relatively on the world stage, so it is essentially a commercial decision uh, as to whether he keeps going. The films are very expensive to make, um, but on the other hand, they uh, produce a considerable profit, so a lot will depend upon whether that goes on being the case. Uh, it's also worth bearing in mind there's been a whole host of novels in the uh, Fleming died in 64 68 saw Colonel Sun by Robert Markham, which is a pseudonym for Kingsley Amis, and a whole sequence of novels have come out since, which are not, on the whole, the best one was the uh, uh, the Amis. The William Boyd wasn't bad, um, but uh, the Horowitz wasn't bad, uh, but a lot of them were pretty awful. The John Gardner's were pretty awful. But, the you know, there there is a lot there, and that reflects public interest. And, you know, what is ironic is that this is public interest without a penny of subsidy in terms of the novels um, with, you know, as it were, them being surrounded by PC critics who tell you how roundly this or that is bad. And yet people want to read them, not just in Britain, but around the world. As you say, a very significant portion of the world's population has watched these films. And insofar as they provide a depiction of human resolution under pressure to resist what is bad, these are profoundly moral films. And it is better that they are shown than a lot of the stuff that is on offer. There was a time uh, during the the Timothy Dalton uh, Bond films where uh, the the box office receipts went down quite markedly. And there was a lot of talk at that time that maybe Bond had his day. And then he started to have a a revival uh, with GoldenEye and and then subsequently with, with, with the Daniel Craig uh, uh, films is he though do you feel never more than one or two bombed box office flops away from uh, time being called or, or is he is, is there something about him that is eternal well first of all you're absolutely right I mean there was a problem not just with Timothy Dalton in fact the later Roger Moore ones I mean Moonraker did fantastically well but then they went downhill and View to a Kill was very poor indeed um, so you're absolutely right. The trajectory is uncertain. But there's several things to say. First of all, if the big feature film comes to an end, I cannot but believe that there will be others who will attempt to put um, 
bond on the screen. And for that reason, I think that the existing franchise will try and keep him in production. So I think that's a fact. Secondly, if you look at ways in which um, Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot or Batman have been uh, reinvented, and I don't want to shock you, Graham, all of these are fictional characters, but if you look at the ways these have been reimagined and represented, there is certainly ways in which you can move outside a given sequence um, or given production method and nevertheless keep the character um, having some resonance. And I don't know if you ever saw the Basil Rathbone um, uh, Conan Doyle, you know, Sherlock Holmes uh, ones. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, they're filmed in the 1930s and, you know, they set, take Sherlock Holmes to places like Canada, Washington, Algiers. And they have at the front, and for each of them, a sort of rolling series of words which says, you know, Sherlock Holmes is a universal character, blah, blah, blah. In other words, don't think of him simply in the Baker Street uh, fog. So there is the potential there that, yes, that um, if at any stage, and, you know, I would be very surprised if a hundred years' time they're still turning out uh, Bond blockbusters of the current type, but who knows what production technology is going to be used. But there is the potential for reimagining the character. I mean, the very first depiction, it is worth bearing mind, of James Bond on the screen was uh, in 1954, and that was a one hour uh, black and white television uh, piece in the United States, a version of Casino Royale, in fact. So don't feel that it has to be uh, the format that we, uh, that we see at the present day. Well, it sounds like there is infinite adaptation in this character yet. Jeremy Black, someone who is uh, stirred but, but not shaken. Thank you very much indeed. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.